invite you to turn with me to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, and we take up verses 11 through 15 uh, for the consideration of the sermon this morning. Titus 2, verses 11 through 15. One of the themes that we have seen in Titus is that our Christian lives are dependent upon our doctrine. Our lives cannot be separated from what we say that we believe. And so we see, especially here in Titus 2, that all of the commands and exhortations that we saw last week in verses 1 through 10 regarding discipleship and pursuit of godly living are wrapped up in and dependent upon what we see here in verses 11 through 15 concerning the glorious grace of our Lord to us. And so, if you found your place in Titus 2, I invite you to stand with me out of respect and honor for the reading of God's Word. Beginning in verse 11, the Word of the Lord says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, instructing us to deny godlessness and worldly lusts, and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. Proclaim these things. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. May God bless the reading and preaching of his word. You may be seated. As we've walked through the book of Titus together, Uh, The theme that we keep coming back to is found in verse 5, that Paul has sent Titus to, to Crete to set right the things that were left undone, to set in order the things that were left undone. And so through Paul, the gospel has been preached on the island of Crete, and churches have been planted in every town. And now Paul's main point in writing to Titus while he does ministry on the island of Crete is to show him that healthy churches must consist of healthy Christians who are pursuing godliness together. That's what we've seen through the book of Titus. He appoints elders to model godliness and to lead the church in pursuing godliness through sound doctrine. We've seen that these elders are to teach things consistent with sound doctrine. That is, that they are to instruct the church to engage in gender-appropriate and intergenerational discipling relationships in which they pursue godliness together and to, uh, to create and to develop godliness in one another. And so now, as we come to the end of chapter 2, we might imagine that some of the saints on the island of Crete, as Titus might have shared this letter with them, asking Paul, why? Why is it that we are to do all of these things? Paul, are you just telling us to, to go do these things of your own apostolic authority, though Paul would have the right to do that? We, we might imagine them saying, why? What, what is our motivation for doing these things? And Paul says, in order to do these things... We need to be reminded of God's grace in our lives. It's because of grace. You see, the word of the the verse 11 that we picked up in begins with the word for. And that word for means because. It grounds what preceded and what uh, is to succeed it. It grounds what he's just commanded in this next paragraph, specifically grounding the commands of verses 1 through 10 in the grace of God. In other words, verses 11 through 14 specifically provide the theological foundation for the exhortations given earlier in the chapter. 
the word for grounds the commands in verse 1 through 10 in the theological truth of 11 through 14. One pastor I heard this week likened this to the construction of a house. You might think of the commands of verses 1 through 10 as, as the structure of the home, the walls, and the roof. And, and as it comes together, it forms the structure of the house. But verses 11 through 15 lay the foundation of the Christian life. And so uh, the structure of the Christian life has been built. The exhortations, the commands, the things that we're to do have been built in verses 1 through 10. And now Paul, on the backside of those commands, says, For here is the foundation. It is built upon the grace of God in our lives. And so it's interesting to note that Paul doesn't just say, now that you're Christians, get out there, get after it, take up these commands, do these things. No, Paul says and explains to them the reality of why it is possible for them to live in obedience. It is because of the grace that has transformed them. It's not merely in the fact that they're in a good church. It's not merely in the fact that they have a good pastor. No, the reason that they are to carry out these commands and exhortations is because their lives are rooted in the grace of God. The reason a church is able to embrace God's design for leadership and discipleship is because our lives have been fundamentally transformed by God's rescuing, reforming, renewing, and redeeming grace. That's our motivation. And it's interesting that Paul gives this as our motivation because we as human beings often don't do very well in keeping commands without any sort of incentive or motivation behind it. And so Paul, keeping that in mind, gives us this motivation, gives us this encouragement to say, look what God has done for you. Now use this to carry out your lives in obedience to his commands. We must be motivated to pursue godliness together from a heart that is utterly amazed by God's grace. Utterly amazed that we sinners have experienced God's grace. Utterly amazed that we sinners continue to experience God's grace. And utterly amazed that other sinners like us are continuing to experience God's grace. And we have been charged by the King of Heaven to disciple them in that grace. We must be motivated to pursue godliness together from a heart that is utterly amazed by God's grace. And if we are to be motivated by grace, then there are three things that Paul tells us that we need to understand about grace in this passage. If you're following along with us this morning, the first thing that we need to understand about grace is that grace rescues us. Look with me again at verse 11. In verse 11, it says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. So again, just to remind you, that word for is, is a grounding word. It means that he grounds what he's just commanded in this next paragraph in the grace of God. Paul is going to go back to some practical commands, but he roots all of the Christian life in this one word, grace. Now, if, if you were to look at this text in the original languages, you would actually see that it's one sentence. Verses 11 all the way down through verse 14 is one sentence in the original language. And the subject of that sentence is grace. And so all of the action that we see in these verses, all of the, the, the carrying out, the verbs that we see are done by one thing. That is the sovereign grace of God in the life of the Christian that has appeared, bringing salvation to us. 
And so when we think about God's grace, perhaps we all might have memorized the short, pithy definition of grace. That is, it's the unmerited favor of God towards us. Perhaps we think of it as kindness shown to those of us who are unworthy. It's, it's some form of undeserved benevolence. But if we're to really understand grace, we need to think of it in the strict biblical sense that grace is that which is contrary to works. Think of it in this way. If I work a 40-hour week and you pay me 40 hours worth of wages, that's not of grace. That's work. I've earned my wages. But if I don't work an hour and you give me 40 hours worth of pay... That's grace. It's a, a free gift that you have bestowed upon me. And so grace, in, in its fundamental sense, is contrary to earning. It is a free gift apart from anything that we are, anything that we do, or anything that we earn. Grace is a free gift of God. It's unmerited favor to us. And so in order for us to really understand what grace is, perhaps we might begin with who we are apart from grace. You see, consider with me the human condition. We are sinners who have broken the law of God. We are born transgressors, and we have broken God's word in, in our words and thoughts and our deeds and our actions from the very beginning of the moments of our lives because we are in our father Adam. And Adam, as we know from the book of Genesis, rebelled against God, trying to usurp his authority and in pride, seeking to be like God himself. He rebelled against his creator and his Lord. And through Adam, Romans 5 tells us that the curse of sin and death comes upon all men. David says in Psalm 51 that we are conceived in sin and that we are born in sin. From the very time of our conception, we are guilty Ephesians 2 tells us that we are sinners by nature, dead in our trespasses and sins, children of wrath by nature, carried along by the inclinations of our flesh and our desires, children of wrath by nature. But we are not merely sinners by nature, though we are. We are actual transgressors. Romans 3 tells us that, or excuse me, yes, Romans 3 tells us, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In this sense, as Romans 6 tells us, we have earned our wages. We are worthy of our wages. Romans 6 tells us that the wages of sin is death. And no matter how we slice it, we are guilty before God, justly condemned and under his almighty wrath. And in our flesh, the natural question that we want to ask is, okay, so what do I do about that? What can I do to make this right with God? What if I never do it again? What if I try to become a better person? What if I never do those things, never commit those sins again? In our human instinct, we are by nature uh, contrary to grace. These questions by their very nature are contrary to the concept of grace. For Romans 3 tells us, For no one will be justified in his sight by the works of the law, because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. We can't earn our way back to God because all that we have earned and all that we are worthy of is death. We have committed our sins, we've earned our wages, and we are condemned before God. Therefore, we don't need to earn anything and we cannot earn anything from God. No, we need grace. And Paul says that it is the grace of God that has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. And if works is contrary to grace, then the salvation that comes is not earned, but it is a free gift. We need deliverance. We need rescue. You see, this word salvation implies that we're in danger. 
that our wages, the things that we've earned and the things that we have done have put us in a predicament in which we are in real danger. And the salvation that we receive of God is the removal from the place of danger and being placed in a place of safety. Think about it like this. Perhaps you see someone standing on train tracks and, and, and a freight train is coming at them at 100 miles an hour. They need to be pushed out of the way. They need to be removed. They, they, they have to be removed from the place of danger and put into a place of safety. Or perhaps you might think of it this way. Imagine a, a firefighter going into a burning building to rescue someone who is being consumed by the flames. Their salvation has not occurred merely by the presence of the firefighter. No, their salvation occurs when they're removed from the burning building and placed in the place of safety. We need salvation, deliverance, and rescue from our sin, our flesh, our death, and our eternal condemnation. And we need the grace of God to bring us from the place of danger to the place of safety, place of peril to a place of refuge. And the danger that we are under is that of the wrath of God being poured out upon us in hell. The peril of our soul is eternal torment. And we need deliverance from God's justice and his wrath. We need salvation from God himself. We need rescuing. We need grace. And the fact that the sovereign God, one author says, the fact that a sovereign God of creation would reach down from heaven and rescue undeserving sinners from the bondage and slavery of sin, from spiritual death and eternal separation from God in a place called hell, can only be described in one word, grace. It is the grace of God that has appeared and brings us salvation. But then the question becomes, how is it that we receive that grace? How is that grace manifest to us? And Paul says, the grace of God has appeared. That word appeared means it has been revealed, it has been made manifest, it has been made known. And that's not to say that God has not always been gracious. God is eternally gracious. It's a part of his character. It's one of his eternal attributes. God is eternally gracious. And yet, in a very unique way, God's grace has appeared to us. It's become visible, it's become tangible in a person, Jesus Christ Paul is talking about the first coming of Christ in which he has come to save sinners. Paul has said this in another place. This saying is trustworthy and full of all acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. The fact that he come to save sinners is in his very name. When the angel comes and, and appears to Joseph, he says that uh, Mary will give birth to a son and you are to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus is the very manifestation, the pure revelation of God's grace in bodily form. Jesus is the embodiment of God's grace. Everything that Jesus did was for our redemption and for a demonstration of God's grace to us. The perfect life that Jesus lived and fulfilling the law of God for us is an act of God's grace. His sin atoning death on the cross of Calvary is an act of God's grace to us. His glorious resurrection from the dead is an act of God's grace and his ascension to the throne of heaven is an act of God's grace to us. God's grace appears in Christ Jesus who brings us deliverance and our rescue comes only through him. While it is right to talk about being saved by the cross of Calvary and by Christ's resurrection or being saved by the blood of Jesus, 
It is imprecise to talk about those things without or separate from the person of Jesus himself. In that sense, we're not merely saved by his death or even merely saved by his blood. No, Jesus himself is the very embodiment of the grace of God. Our salvation comes through the death of Christ. Our salvation comes through the resurrection of Christ. It comes through the shed blood of Jesus on our behalf. Our rescue, our deliverance has appeared in the person of Jesus Christ. And it says that he brings salvation to all people. Now we want to be careful about how we talk about this. And we want to break this down because this phrase, all people, can be confusing at first glance. Some take these words to to understand universalistic salvation, meaning that every single solitary person in the world, no matter whether they believe in Jesus or not, will be saved. In other words, this is the idea that all roads lead to God and therefore everyone will eventually be saved and make it to heaven. This could not be further from the biblical truth of salvation. It doesn't bring salvation to all people in that sense. Others take it to mean that, yes, salvation has appeared in the person of Jesus, but all people who sincerely seek salvation, sincerely seek God according to the natural revelation or the general revelation that they see in creation, though they may have never heard the gospel preached, if they sincerely seek God in some capacity, on the last day they will be corrected in their theology and given the opportunity to appeal to the blood of Christ for their salvation. This is what's known as inclusivism, that salvation is obtained by responding positively to the general revelation of creation and the light of nature that all men have. These are heretical positions regarding salvation. We would affirm what's called exclusivism, that salvation is only obtained through personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And these verses are consistent with our understanding that salvation is only obtained, only secured through personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we have to understand rightly what the Apostle Paul means when he says that salvation, or rather the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. Others who would even call themselves exclusivists in this sense take this verse to say that God desires everyone to be saved or that Christ's death in some way makes all men savable. In some sense that salvation is made available to all people. But what I believe that this verse is teaching us is that salvation comes to all people not without exception, meaning that every single solitary in the person in the world, every single solitary person in the world receives salvation in some capacity or is made savable in some way, but that salvation has come to all people without distinction. And and this makes sense of these verses in the context of Titus, because what did we see last week? Salvation has come to older men. Salvation has come to younger men. Salvation has come to older women and younger women. Salvation has come to Paul, a Jew, and salvation has come to Titus, a Gentile. Salvation has come to slaves and bondservants, and salvation has come to their masters. It's irrespective of age. The grace of God saves without gender distinction. The grace of God saves without age distinction. It, It saves without distinction to privilege or status or race or color or background. Anyone ever saved will be saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, because salvation has now appeared, bringing salvation to all people. Without respect, salvation has come to all people. And salvation 
is by God's free gift of grace to us. If you're here this morning and you've not been saved, if you've not come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, place your faith in Him. You must be saved, delivered from the wrath of God to come. There is a freight train, as I mentioned earlier, a freight train of God's wrath approaching you. But there is one Christ Jesus who will stand in the place of that train and endure the wrath of God reserved for you. If you will but believe on his name, confess him with your mouth, and trust in him for your eternal salvation. Oh, look to the appearing of the grace of God in Christ Jesus you cannot save yourself by your wisdom. You cannot save yourself by your works. The grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to you if you would receive Christ today by repenting of your sins and believing in the gospel. It matters not if you're old or young. It matters not if you're male or female. It matters not if you're slave or free, rich or poor. It matters not if you're Jew or Gentile. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and confess him with your mouth and you will be saved. Dear church, this is the foundation of our mission. This is why we take the gospel to the nations as we looked in Acts 1 a few weeks ago. That we're his witnesses beginning in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the world. The foundation of our mission is that the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all people. And so we take the gospel to the nations trusting that men and women of every tongue, tribe, people and nation will come to know Christ because salvation has appeared to all. But dear Christian, I encourage you to reflect on God's grace to you personally. Perhaps you find yourself this morning struggling to make disciples or to live a godly life or, or to pursue holiness in the way that the scriptures have commanded us here in Titus. Reflect on the saving grace of God to you. Salvation has appeared to you, bringing you salvation, deliverance from the bondage of the enslavement of sin, bringing you uh, freedom from the power of sin reflect on God's saving grace in Christ Jesus that has appeared and brought salvation to you. God's grace rescues us. But the second thing that I want us to see about grace is that grace reforms us. Grace reforms us. Look at verse 12. It says, instructing us, that is the grace of God, instructing us to deny godless, godlessness and worldly lusts, and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so here in verses 12 through 13, the Apostle Paul shifts from instruct to instruction in behavior. In other words, as one commentator says, proper behavior stems from proper theology. And if we have a right understanding of God's grace, then it will inform and instruct us on how we are to live. Grace rescues us, but grace is not merely the way that we get saved, that is delivered from the wrath of God. No, grace is the foundation for then we, how we then live as one who has been saved. Grace teaches us and instructs us in how to live as recipients of God's grace. And so in that sense... The grace of God saves us in the past. It justifies us. It declares us righteous before God. 
But there's also a present element of our salvation. That is, we are being sanctified and renewed and being transformed and conformed more and more to the image of His dear Son. It is grace that continues to instruct us and teach us what it means to live in light of the saving grace that we have received in Christ Jesus. Now, it is somewhat controversial to insist that grace has an ongoing work in the life of a believer. It is common and popular to hold that it is legalism to say that someone must live a life commensurate with the gospel that they say that they have believed. Many might embrace a form of salvation that we might call easy believism. But godliness is necessary for believers. And the doctrine of justification by faith alone does not render obedience unnecessary. Rather, the doctrine of justification by faith alone is what produces obedience within us. And so Paul here dives headfirst into the relationship between faith and works. And he concludes in these verses uh, that we cannot earn our salvation, that justification truly is by grace alone through faith alone. But he also concludes that a genuine saving experience of grace continues in a pursuit of that grace. That is, salvation from sin's penalty results in salvation from the power of sin over us. If we believe and confess that we've been saved from the penalty of sin, that we are righteous before God then that same deliverance, that same grace that has saved us from that penalty of sin also saves us from the power of sin over us. That is, we are no longer enslaved to sin, but we have been made slaves of righteousness. John Calvin says it this way, Faith alone saves, but saving faith is never alone. Another author said it this way, Grace, rightly perceived, compels Holiness. Grace rightly perceived compels holiness. And we see that this is exactly what Paul has set up for us in Titus. After all, he has said of the false teachers in chapter 1 that they are not only teaching false doctrine, but they claim to know God, but deny him by their works. They're detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. Titus 1.16 and so, in contrast to the false teachers who not only embrace false teaching, but embrace a false way of life after receiving the grace of God, or allegedly receiving the grace of God, Paul says we as Christians embrace the right doctrine, embrace the true understanding of grace, but also embrace a life eager to do good works along with that. And so grace instructs us. Grace teaches us, grace trains us first to, to say no to sin. He says that we are to deny godlessness and worldly lust. We who are dead and enslaved to sin have been freed by God's grace now to say no to sin. We deny, we renounce on an ongoing basis godlessness and worldly lust. We reject uh, an attitude of ignoring God. We embrace godliness. This word for godlessness or ungodliness is the antonym, the opposite of the godliness that Paul has said we ought to be pursuing. And in our pursuit of godliness, we deny ungodliness. But we also deny worldly lust. Not only do we deny the outward actions of sin, that is what would be the manifestation of ungodliness, 
We also deny the inward impulses and lusts of the flesh that, and desires that reside within us. Christians are not to indulge and entertain ungodliness and worldly lusts. We put them to death in our own flesh. Dear Christian, I ask you this morning, what lusts of the flesh, what ungodliness, what, uh, what worldly lusts are you indulging in, in the secret recesses of your hearts? The call to Christianity and the call of grace is to be reformed by the renewing of your mind and the transforming of your hearts to put those things to death. Grace instructs us to deny these things, but grace also instructs us to pursue godliness. Paul explains it as this. It instructs us to deny godlessness and worldly lusts and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age. That word sensible there is the word that we've seen over and over again in Titus as self-controlled. It's the summarizing term in the category of elder leadership that they're to be modeling holiness before the church in self-control. It's what old men are called to be and young men are called to be. It's what older women are called to be, that they are self-controlled in everything, living righteous, holy, upright lives before the world. God's grace should be visible in the way that we live. They're to live reverently in a God-honoring way, in a godly way before the Lord, recognizing that all of life is dependent upon Him. Grace reforms us in that way. It changes us. It teaches us to live different. But it also changes us because it gives us a new hope. After all, verse 13 says this, We wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Because we are recipients of God's grace, our hope is no longer in this world or in the things of this world or in the pursuit of the joys and the pleasures that this world brings. No, we deny all of those things in pursuit of our one joy, that is Christ Jesus. And while we live in a present age marked by evil, we live differently from this present evil age because we have been instructed by grace to pursue godliness until Christ returns. This is our blessed hope in that at his appearing we will receive the culmination of all of our pursuits of godliness. John says it this way, When we see him, we will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Dear Christian, we live in light of the impending return of Christ. We live different in this present evil age, allowing grace to reform and transform our lives because Jesus is coming again for us. We live different than the world because our eyes are upon the return of Jesus. We live in anticipation that he is coming again for us. When we have that kind of hope and expectation, it ought to transform our lives, ought it? After all, I remember when Allie was pregnant with John, we were eagerly anticipating his arrival into the world. Day after day, we looked forward to this. We hoped in this. We had confidence that uh, by the grace of God, he would one day arrive and, and be a member of our family in that sense. We, we longed for this day and we looked forward to it with confidence. Our excitement was unwavering. But more importantly, it affected the way that we lived day to day. We talked about his arrival often. We made preparations for his arrival. We went and bought the things that were appropriate and necessary uh, for having a child in our home. And there, there was nothing else that we would rather be doing the day that he arrived than, than receiving him into our family. 
Well, dear Christian, like Ali and I might have waited for the birth of our son, so we wait in anticipation for the return of Christ. And in waiting in anticipation for the return of Christ, we wait in faith and confidence. We wait eagerly and expectantly. And most importantly, knowing that we are waiting for Christ to return should affect how we live. It is because Jesus is coming back for us that we deny godlessness and we deny worldly lusts. And we live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in this present evil age. We rest in God's grace and hope in his return because Jesus is coming again for us. And so the instruction of grace and the hope that we have in the return of Christ reforms our lives. Dear Christian, may you be so captivated uh, by the grace of God that has rescued you. And may you be so captivated by the anticipation that Jesus is coming to redeem you that you flee from the presence of sin in your life and you pursue obedience. You see, salvation and obedience go together. Obedience is not optional. But know this, that we obey because of the work that God has already done in us and we obey in anticipation of the work that God is going to do in us in the future. He who began a good work in us will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. And so we submit to the instruction of grace and we teach others to do so also. Dear Christian, I ask you, have you lost your zeal to say no to worldly lusts and and, and the godlessness of this age? Have you stopped fighting and started indulging? One author said this, we are surrounded by a world that says no to nothing. When we are surrounded by this sort of mentality, then suddenly to be told that the Christian life, excuse me, that in the Christian life, there is to be this strong negative aspect of saying no to things and no to self, it must seem hard. And if it does not feel hard to us, we are not really letting it speak to us. Dear Christian, I want to acknowledge that it is a difficult thing to say no to the things of this world. But these things are passing away. And the grace that instructs us is forever. It reforms us and it, and it renews us and it rescues us. Have you lost your concern in saying yes to godliness? Have you, have you stopped pursuing godliness and just started coasting in your Christian life? Have you, have you lost your zeal in pursuing these things? Know that it requires effort and discipline to pursue godliness in the way that these verses instruct us. But know this as well, that you can pursue those things built upon a foundation of grace in what God has done for you. And so not only do we pursue these things ourselves, but we instruct others to pursue them. Discipleship begins with instruction regarding God's grace. We don't teach, older men don't teach younger men to be self-controlled and godly and holy and all of these things apart from the grace of God. That's legalism. Older women don't teach younger women to be all of the things that Titus 2 says that they ought to be, reverent in behavior and not slanderers and not slaves to excessive drinking and self-controlled and all of these things apart from the grace of God. Our discipleship of one another and discipleship of the younger generation begins with a right understanding of the grace of God. I think that many of you would agree with me 
that what has been true in my life, that the more that I have grown to understand the sovereign grace of God in my life, the more it has spurned a desire for me to pursue holiness. In other, way, in other words, as someone had took me alongside them and taught me what God had done to save me, and I began to understand and my mind to begin to, to grow and be filled with the grace of God, then it became easier for me to pursue godliness in this present evil age. And so our discipleship begins with a right understanding of grace. We teach younger Christians about grace so that they will desire to hear instructions from grace. Grace reforms us. But the final thing that I want us to see in these verses is that grace redeems us. Look at verse 14. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. And so as we look at this final verse here, verses 14 and 15, I want to recognize that these are in some ways a summary of the two verses that we've already looked at. And so I want to spend less time here. But I also want to highlight this aspect of redemption. You see, Christ gave himself to redeem from lawlessness and to cleanse a people for himself eager to do good works. And this shows us that we are redeemed at a price. That word redeemed, it means to release upon the receipt of a ransom. That's why Jesus says that the Son of Man came in to seek and to save that which was lost and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus came to redeem us. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. That phrase for us could be translated in our place or in the place of us. And this refers to the vicarious and substitutionary nature of Christ's death for us. In our place, condemned he stood. We have a Savior because he stood in our place, enduring the wrath of God for us, purchasing our pardon, and then liberating us to live a life for him. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We are freed from sin because Jesus became sin for us. And we are able to pursue righteous because we have been declared righteous, not by our own righteousness. That's filthy rags. We are able to pursue righteousness because Jesus was righteous for us. And we are now liberated from the bondage of sin. He redeems us from lawlessness and he redeems us not to a place of neutrality, but he makes us a people for his own possession. This is a reference back to the book of Exodus in which the Lord redeems a people, redeems Israel out of Egyptian bondage. They belonged to the Egyptians. They were enslaved to the Egyptians. And God redeems them out. And he says in Exodus 19, Now if you will carefully listen to me and keep my covenant, you will be my own possession out of all the peoples, although the whole earth is mine, and you will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. These are the words that you are to say to the Israelites. The Lord there, it didn't show up in this translation, but the Lord calls them his treasured possession. He has called them out of slavery and he has made them his own treasured possession. And the Apostle Peter picks up on the same language in 1 Peter when he says that we're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession. 
Because Christ redeems us, we have a new owner, a new master, a new king, a new Lord. We have been bought with a price, but not bought and freed to live for ourselves, but to live unto God. He has redeemed us as a people for his own possession, and he has redeemed us unto purity. It says he cleanses us from lawlessness and makes us eager for good works. He cleanses us and washes us. Where sin had left a crimson stain on our souls, Jesus washes us white as snow. And he washes us unto good works. Unlike the Cretan false teachers who said that they know God, but denied him by their works. And they were unfit, detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good works. We have been redeemed by Christ from lawlessness, cleansed from our lawlessness, cleansed from our sinfulness, and now by His grace made eager to do good works. Good, good works are the proper response and overflow of a heart that has received grace. And so Titus is to teach these things, proclaim these things, encourage and rebuke with all authority because he has received grace. He teaches sound doctrine. He teaches the gospel of God's grace. He teaches things consistent with sound doctrine, that is, discipleship and the pursuit of godliness together, because he understands that we have received God's grace. May these truths compel us to godliness. And so, church, the foundation upon which we build godly lives is grace. Our motivation for pursuing godliness and obedience is grace. God's grace has appeared and rescued us from the wrath to come. God's grace has appeared and it instructs us to deny godliness and godlessness and to live upright in this present evil age and to give us hope in Christ Jesus. And God's grace has appeared to redeem us from the slavery of sin and to bring us into the possession of Christ Jesus uh, who is coming again for us. May we build our lives and our discipleship and our pursuit of godliness on a foundation of grace that rescues and reforms and redeems. Let's go to him in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your grace. Lord, we want to bow in awe of your grace this morning. In all that we guilty, vile wretches before you have been rescued from your wrath. We justly deserved it. We justly stand accused. And yet Jesus stands in our place to rescue us and redeem us, to liberate us from the bondage of sin and to make us a people of his own possession, eager to do good works. Oh God, we pray that we as a church would be obedient in this. And we pray that we would teach others the same. Help us to do this now in Jesus' name. Amen.